<laughs> okay, welcome, folks. Welcome back to Larger, Freer, More Loving. As always, I'm Matt Levine. I'm Dwight Lewis. And last time, we welcomed our first guest of the season, Dr. Maisha Cherry, who was absolute fire in talking about emotions in philosophy, her work on Lordy and Rage against racial injustice, uh, and James Baldwin's work on Black Rage against anti-Blackness and white supremacy. Uh, and our conversation today is going to continue to be on these things that we want to forefront in this second season of the show, things like the role of emotion in racial justice and social justice work more broadly, uh, concepts of tran transformation and revolution, uh, and uplifting ways of being, knowing, and doing uh, that are marginalized in our anti-Black, white supremacist, patriarchal capitalist world. Mm. And today... We are lucky enough to have that conversation with a scholar, public intellectual and activist who's done wonderful work that touches on all of these fronts. And just to be real, happens to be one of my very, very, very favorite human beings on the entire planet, uh, Dr. Claudia Ford. So thanks for being here, Claudia. Uh, and we wanna open up the space for you to uh, introduce yourself. Wow, cool, cool. Okay, thank you. It's so wonderful to be here. And uh, Maisha Cherry was definitely fire. I went out after that interview and just got the book immediately, right? I, think I got the audio book. I listened to it like I just binged on that because she just broke it down, right? So um so it's great to see you matt dwight thank you for inviting me uh really enjoy the podcast a lot i'm glad that you're doing this i'm learning so much and yeah well i haven't had to do an introduction in such a long time right because uh, i'm always teaching right i'll introduce myself to my students well i do what do i tell them um so I'm a professor of environmental studies at SUNY Potsdam um, and the chair of the department. And it, it feels like, wow, why am I in environmental studies? So that's a whole conversation, how I got here. Um, and I really like teaching at SUNY Potsdam, even though it's very complicated. I like working with this particular group of students um because it is a it's a public education it's um for students who some of them had super challenges they were not privileged in high school um and so college is like this true experience for them and i love being in the classroom with them and just watching these things right just getting to know them and and seeing that shift right as they begin to understand the role that knowledge might be able to play in their lives. Like for me, that that's awesome. And I've worked, I've worked in very privileged um, university settings as well. I taught at RISD for years. So we had brown students there. I don't think it gets much more privileged than that. Um, and it was fun working with those students too. Uh, but the, it's a huge difference, right? Because literally they had they had been privileged, most of them, every step of the way, right? Mm -hmm. So there was this an assumption of privilege, this assumption of, of um, mastery, this assumption of, of, of kind of, they, they knew how the system worked. And so they worked the system for them. So that's one thing that's happening right now. Um, I guess usually my introduction includes the fact that I am um, the mother of four and the grandmother of two and I have a stepdaughter hey and um, uh, my being a, a mom has been absolutely essential to my identity my life who I am and in fact even my scholarship um, and so I would add that uh, I'm an artist and a writer and the other big thing is that I spent um more than three decades outside of the United States. So I left in my 20s and came back in my 50s. 
and um, was, we lived all over the world. My kids went to school in 12 different countries, and that was just a phenomenal experience for both for who I am to do that, who they are, and, you know, why I did that. So there's lots of stories there as well. So I guess that's me. Oh, we are so excited to have you here. And yeah. I'm in this space. Um, yeah, yeah, 100%. So excited. Yeah, yeah. Excited to be here. So yeah, as exciting and awesome as all of this past work is and your present work is, uh, we know you have some super exciting opportunities coming up in the near future. Uh, you're going to be in Germany with some family uh, and working on a badass fellowship that you recently earned. Uh, so what are you doing while you're in Germany and what's the topic of your project? Oh, great. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. And I'm doing two things, actually, while I'm in Germany in terms of my, my scholarship. So the first is that I got a... Um, I got a, a, a grant to write a book on Black ecological thought. Um, and I know we're going to talk about that, that later, but the, part of the, the reason that I'm going to Germany and taking the sabbatical is so that I have time now to really dive into that research and shape the book and figure out, okay, I've been playing around with it, but I need that, that time, you know, that in, uninterrupted time. So that's super exciting. And then I applied for this uh, fellowship at Eustis Liebig University, which is in Gießen, Germany, which is kind of towards the southern part of Germany, central, maybe central south. Um, and it's with the panel on planetary thinking. And it's the, they're doing uh, something really interesting where they're being, bringing together both scientists and artists to do oh. a joint residency and do kind of figure out an artistic exploration of a topic in planetary thinking. The topic, this is the first residency and our topic is called planetary materials. And so we get to interpret that the way that we want. So my proposal for that, um, was that we look at the concept of Gaia, which is that the earth is a sentient being, right? That it, it has its own integrity as an organism. It was put forth by James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis, um, among others. And it's, it's kind of controversial in the scientific world. There are people who are like, yeah, not really. Um, and what I wanted to do was then look at that from the perspective of um, indigenous uh, paradigms, indigenous ways of looking at how we talk about the earth, because that's a, it's a very scientific concept that's um, you know, introduced by these two white academics. And there's all this controversy, but the topic itself is like, it doesn't cause controversy from an indigenous perspective because it's like, of course, the earth is an animate, um, you know, being like, why you got, what's the, what are you tripping about, right? Um, and so that's what I kind of want to interrogate the idea that as far as planetary materials go, like what we're made of, what the planet's made of, what the cosmos is made of, that is unitary. Right, that's expression. We all have the same DNA as a star, right? But there are all these diverse ways of understanding that. And so that's going to be the project. And because I'm both an artist and a scientist, I'm really hoping um, they're, they're going to give me a studio. So I'm really hoping that I might also help shape the artistic exploration of that. And I don't know what that looks like right now, because to get in that, there's this mind space, this headspace you have to get into when you're in studio, right? And, and I'm not in that right now. So <laughs> it's just too many distractions. But what I'm hoping is that I can, like leading up to that, it starts in September. So I'll have some time leading up to it and that I can just fully get into that studio space as well and try to figure out what the artistic expression is of this. 
So that's, yeah, super exciting for me. No, that is awesome. I am thrilled that they're like bringing scientists and artists together. Things I dream about. It's things I dream about. Bringing that heart and the head together in a way that like, it's not just speaking to people theoretically, but also can speak to them emotionally. Like, I didn't even know fellowships like this were out here. So I wish I could apply for this. (laughs) You (laughs) Uh, can. (laughs) <laughs> oh, well, uh, you, you're right I definitely <laughs> um, so you brought up planetary materials um, and so I'm going to ask you just so that you know people that are coming from this from the outside can understand um, because we know that you're uh, focused on planetary consciousness and relationship to these materials and so would you mind explaining to us what is like planetary consciousness, and then how does it relate to ecology? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So planetary consciousness and how it relates to ecology. Yeah, sure. And and what's great is I'm also learning about this, right? Because like some of this framing is new. So I'm like, yeah, let me let me figure what is going on here. So <laughs> and I love that, right? Um, Any opportunity to study. So there's this this kind of there's this conversation now that um, has somewhat to do with, with the, the environmental crisis, right? So we're under this, this, um, this existential crisis because of our environment. And uh, what a number of people are saying, people like Donna Haraway um, is, is all, all over this as well, is that the framework of the global which has been kind of running things for a while, globalization, um, global political structures, this globalized, um, gl- globalized culture, um, technology, right? Like there's this, this, been this framework um, and Anna Singh writes about this as well, of what is the global? Um, and what's happening now is that that's being troubled by the fact that our environmental crisis, which, which is becoming more apparent, it's been around, but it's becoming more apparent to people, is making us understand that the global is limited by be only referring to the human and that we need to be thinking as the planetary. So there's this beginning to be this shift from global global thinking to planetary thinking, yeah. because planetary thinking then would decenter the human, which is what we need to do, right? And then bring in all the systems, all the needs, all the um, operating principles of the the non-human, both animate and inanimate, because if you're talking planetary, you're talking the whole thing. You're talking air, water, soil, uh, you know, it's all of it. It's not just the non-human in terms of the the biological or the animate non-human, but it's also the inanimate non-human. So, that I when these planet this planetary thinking panel is attempting um, and they're based in Europe they're based here in, in Germany um, and but they're working across a few European countries they're bringing thinkers together to really look at this from di- different angles what what is planetary thinking this is a new thing what should we be talking about why is it different from the global what are the the kind of the different ways that we need to approach um our knowledge based on the fact that we we need to be focusing not just on the human but on these planetary systems if, if that makes sense no complete sense complete yeah. sense yeah that, that was <laughs> that was fine <laughs> complete yeah. sense so i have uh, like one more question then uh-huh. in relationship to that because um uh, i think at the beginning you were talking about um um, you've been talking about blackness, you've been talking about native. Um, and so I'm wondering how, uh, um, yeah, I'm going to jump right in. I'm going, I'm like jumping in. Okay. Uh, <laughs> That's good. <laughs> uh, 
So how can like, um, and I know this is in relationship also to your book project, um, how can black ecology um, or how does black ecology do something that ecology in general can't do, right? right. So what, right. Is it, what is it that black ecology has to offer um, to planetary consciousness um, um, that ecology in I'm only asking this question because this is the question that you know, whiteness would ask me about my, about my projects. <laughs> right, right, right. No, that's a great question. And, and I'm, I'm actually looking at my notes because um, just today I came across these authors, Rowan and Hasby wrote this great article. The article is August, 2019, and it's called Black Ecologies. Oh. So I'm, I'm looking right at that to really, because um, they, just, they just nailed it, right? which is, is it, I think it's a lot of things. First of all, it's what I started by saying, which is when the Western um, theorists frame this planetary, looking from their point of view, thing, you know, they're arguing about, well, Gaia, is it real, is it not real, right? And for indigenous peoples, um, both indigenous, we often think Native American, but I'm also talking about indigenous in terms of blackness, right? Um, uh, us as indigenous people, um, that's not a thing, right? If you take, for example, African animism, um, that is about the spirit, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the sacred in everything, animate and inanimate. If you take indigenous North American, that is about the, the kinship with all forms of existence, right? So, so I think what one thing that black ecology and, and in this case, indigenous ecologies are bringing into this conversation is there's no, there's no dichotomy here. You, you're talking about some, a position that we have always held. Right, so why don't you listen to us talk, tell you about it, right? Because this is a part of our legacy and we can help explain what it means. So that's one way of looking at black ecology. I think another way is to say, if the project is to create a different way of relating to the earth, right? Because the, the, the current system, the capitalist and patriarchal system is, has screwed things up in terms of its relationship to the earth, right? Like we're, we're in trouble. There's no question about that. So how do we envision a different future, a different relationship of man to nature, of human to, to the natural world, right? And I think black ecologies are positioned to answer that question. And then it goes into, you know, things like Afro-pessimism, which, um, you know, we had, we had talked about uh, before, Matt, Matt and I have talked about this um, many times, right? Because then you're starting to say, well, what is it about the condition of blackness that then allows for different ways of thinking about this? Um, and you, a lot of people, you know, starting, of course, with Sadia Hartman and Wilderson, who are writing about Afro-pessimism, um, are, are thinking about the unique position of, of Blackness very specifically relative to our current moment of capitalism and patriarchy mm -hmm. um, creates an opening and a different way of seeing these relationships so that it becomes about freedom, it becomes about abolition because the condition of Blackness is about, about bondage. So then this new relationship has to be about freedom. The condition of blackness is about social death. So then this new relationship has to address um, a, a redefinition of what humanity is. And I think Mbembe says that um, for sure, 
um, in his writing that we're, and if people don't know Mbembe, he's this like awesome Cameroonian um, um, public intellectual and political philosopher, right? Who happens to work at my old school, which is University of the Witzbottersrand in Johannesburg. I was there for like nine years um, and he teaches there now. So like, yay for Witz. Um, but he talks a, a lot about how this condition of oppression for blackness is built in, it's baked into the current system. And so in order to, to um, dismantle anti-blackness, you have to dismantle the system. And for me, Afro-pessimism is then saying, okay, so what's next? So what are we going for? We acknowledge that, that this condition of bondage um, is in anti-blackness or baked into capitalism. We acknowledge that in order to move forward, um, we need to dismantle that. And something about freedom, something about letting go of that bondage is very much tied to the natural world. It's tied to our relationship to nature. How do we then redefine that relationship? Um, so for me, that's that's super exciting. And as you said, that's where I'm coming now with my book, right? I'm trying to explore this um, through the book. And I'm at the stage in the book, like the really beginning, right? Which is so, so much fun. Um, that point where you know, you're like collecting articles and drawing diagrams, right? And trying to figure out where everything goes, and who's talking to who. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. That, but these are the kinds of conversations that I'm reading now, which are asking that question of what is the unique contribution of Black ecology to this moment of transformation? That's awesome. And I just want to say, I, remembering uh, philosophers, there are still some that listen to us. Uh, uh, any, any philosophers out there who happen to work in epistemology, uh, please just re-listen to everything Claudia has said so far. Y'all's discipline needs some work and, and Claudia's going to help out with that. Uh, but no, one of, one of the things I was thinking about there, right, is this is this point, right, to dismantle anti-blackness, we have to dismantle the system, right? And 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 one of the things this makes me think about is is how how you and I have talked before, Claudia, about folks who want to take some kind of moderate or moderationist approach to uh, justice of any kind, but especially racial justice, are just completely completely missing the point. Um, so, so I'm, uh, and I was also thinking about this in relation to, right, moving toward a planetary consciousness to me uh, requires ultimately thinking about balance in a way that, that the Western capitalist white supremacist world does not like. Uh, so I'm just realizing as I was listening to you there, I was like, ooh, moderationism, I do not care for. Balance. <laughs> I'm a big fan of. Uh, so I'm just curious, uh, do you have any thoughts here on on the relationship between moderateness and balance or disentangling them or yeah, and anything coming up for you there? Wow, I like that. Yeah, I hadn't really thought, but absolutely those things are, are, are related because you, you, moderation, you're kind of taking a position, right? And you're, 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 you're standing there. And as we know from like martial arts, if you stand in a position, you are, you are vulnerable, right? Because you can't move. You can't, you know, like you get, you get caught in a position then you're, you're toast, right? So, so that's not a place you want to be. And mo most moderates and most people who are promoting moderation are talking about, okay, this is where I stand. You can't move me from this. This is where I want to be, you know, even if it's in the middle. And balance is talking about flexibility. Balance is talking about, you know what, guys? Um, it's not, it's not all good or all bad, right? It is a matter of really being able to accept and shift and hold 
um, difficult contradictions, right? And I, I remember, I don't know when it was, um, I think it was when the kids were pretty little, I have to orient myself with the whole parenting thing. And the, there was a conversation about what is the meaning of life, right? And, and someone said to me, it's to be able to hold contradicting ideas at the same time and be comfortable with the notion that a, a, a truth, and you know, God, we struggle right now with what that word means, but I still believe in it, that a truth can hold um, conflicting ideas and still be whole. And that's balance, right? You need to be able to, to, to shift, to move, to be flexible. Um, what, what else? The, the other meaning of life, just as an aside, was uh, dinner with friends. <laughs> and that was, that was the pre-pandemic days, right? Um, which I love because it's that idea, of that wonderful community that used to happen and will happen again um, when you're just out with your, your, your posse and you're just communing over a meal. And so for me, that also talks about community, which is part of the balance, right? For us as Americans, one of the biggest places we are imbalanced is in this whole idea of individualism. We are convinced that we do it ourselves, that it's for us, that, you know, like that for me is, is the most out of balance that we are in this society. It's the, this notion of radical individualism. And one of the things that the planetary is exploding is, is, is the fact that uh, no, it's about community. It's about relationship. And radical individualism is, is definitely one of the things that um, centers humans, that, some, that you know, uh, perpetuates that myth that somehow we are on the type of some kind of a hierarchy. And that is just not true. Um, so yeah, that, that would be a place where when you think of balance, um, you need to understand that you, you have your own gifts and talents and responsibilities and role, absolutely. But it, it, has, it, it exists in the context of a whole community. It in, exists in the context of other people and other species, right? And the planetary. So that, that goes back to this idea of what is the planetary? What is our, what is our role? When I think of balance, I also think of that whole idea of role, role and responsibility. So, you know, that, that was a great part about me spending literally my whole adult life outside of this culture was that I was immersed in working in and, and living in and raising kids in these cultures that were completely different, especially on this idea of community versus the individual. And so by necessity, I needed to understand that. I needed to open my own mind to understand what that meant. And it really helped me to see the richness that comes from things like Ubuntu, that idea that I am a person because of other people, right? I exist in on this planet because of all the other systems um, that that helped me to be, and that is not just um, a role that I play, but there are also responsibilities that go along yeah, with yeah, that, yeah. right? So yeah. people will say, "Oh, Claudia, you're an elder," and for me, that for doesn't mean that everybody should be like. Oh wow, Claudia's an elder, right? It means what is my role in the community relative to that particular, what is my responsibility relative to that role? And that goes all the way through, right? Because our roles change. We're constant, we're constantly developing. We never stop developing as humans. That's kind of a revelation that hits you in your 30s, right, guys? Um, when you realize, oh, this project goes on forever, right? Um, and yeah, that's, that's a big part of us realizing, yep, we, we keep developing, we keep changing and 
balance is is where it's at. Moderation is it's based on fear. It's based on on, on, on yeah. It's based on fear. It's based on this this desire to control, which is what we we tend to do when we're afraid. Um, which is why it doesn't work, right? Because yeah, we we can fool ourselves into thinking we have a lot of control, um, but yeah, it, it's it's such a great question. Thank you. Whoa, that was a great question. And your response? Yeah, yeah. I'm over here writing down so much stuff. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> and it made me think right away about you brought up the kids, and we've all got these students, uh, and they have a right. They have a term for this to some extent, this imbalance, right? We call it uh, main character sy- syndrome, right? Oh, uh, I haven't heard that one. Hyper, this hyper, uh, this like hyper individualism, where it's like you, like if you were in a sitcom, if you were in a this, you appear in the world as you are the main character always, right? right? Uh, and so it's like really cool to see some things that like we have only been able to name and claim like theoretically over the last like 30 years, these kids actually be able to put it into action. Uh, this younger generation like sees it. Um, and I just appreciate the ways that like you are talking to these young kids, even though they don't, they may not at times even know it. Uh, <laughs> but you're, you know what I'm saying? Like you're talking to them and you're talking to them about the real, um, to be serious. I think this is just like you said, the most, yeah, the most important problem that's like existing within our Western sphere. Um, and if we could just like stop seeing ourselves this way, this world would be a hundred times better, a um, hundred times better, a hundred times better. Um, so I appreciate you bringing that to the forefront for us. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so clearly, and so clearly. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so, so we've been dancing around it, so we wanna get to it. Arguably the part of your work we're most excited for our listeners to hear about is your work on grandmother epistemology. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So what is grandmother epistemology? How did you come to be working on it? Uh, and what are you hoping to show others can be done by centering and uplifting it? Yeah, oh, I'm so excited about it because this is like, this is my thing, right? This is my own thing. I just developed this. And, and obviously I was motivated by becoming a grandmother in 2021 um and well actually in 2020 and then 2021 again and so all of a sudden i really knew like that that shift right and it 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 was a developmental shift for me as well and a, a opportunity to really think about my own grandmother i was blessed to have um both grandmothers alive um, my paternal grandmother died when I was five, and I remember her very well and remember that. Um, and then my maternal grandmother um, uh, lived well into, I, I was already through college and had a child, um, and she was still alive because she lived to be 93 um, and um, actually outlived my mother. So, um, yeah, I had a, a longstanding relationship with her. And so there are a couple of things that I, I've been asking myself. Um, one is especially a Black grandmother plays a very, very specific role in the family. Um, and on my maternal side, uh, these were Southern Virginia country <laughs> black women. Like, no, we're not playing, right? <laughs> like, and she was the oldest of six. Um, and my aunties were right there and they, they were watching over us. This was during Jim Crow. It was in the South. So they were on the job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were on the job. They knew they were on the job. They had a mission statement. They they were enacting it. They had a plan. They had strategies. They had programs. When it came to the kids, they were on the job. And so I looked at the ways that my grandmother um, 
was in in the world, right? And started thinking about her her specifically, but then also that role as a way of passing on culture, obviously, the stories. I got all the Br'er Rabbit stories, all the traditional Southern um, stories, her relationship with animate and inanimate objects, especially plants, right? Her, her relationship to religion, her role in the community as the, the prayer warrior, the seer. Hmm. She, used, she used to read people's tea leaves. Um, and I've, I've been thinking, okay, what is it, not just about the grandmother as a figure in the family, but also then as an archetype in the ways that they translate um, and protect Black culture and how difficult that is, right? They were literally trying to keep us alive, yet at the so same time trying to allow us some innocence of childhood, trying to um, teach us the lessons, uh, these life and death lessons um, about staying alive and yet also enabling us to grow and have fun. And I think, so one of the things that's come to me about that is there's this particular strength, not in that, that kind of stereotype or art of, of black women as strong, but in the grandmother as, as a role, there's a particular strength and purpose and intentionality um, so grandmother, for me, grandmother and epistemology is about, one, about intentionality, right? It's like, let's not fool around and just kind of figure out, oh, we'll do this, we'll do that. Let's have a mission statement. Let's have a strategy. Let's really, and the only way you can do that is if you know what your goal is, right? You have to really, why are, why are we here what kind of society are we trying to create? What should our relationship with the earth be? Like in order to, to be intentional, we need to think about and explore those, those, those ideas and have those conversations. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing is, is the, she was a, a highly religious woman in the very traditional black Christian sense but she was definitely an animist and a spiritualist, right? <laughs> and so she had no problem drawing on her, her African roots and talking to the plants and, you know, like, like everything was imbued with spirit. Like that was just the way it was. So I think another part for me that I'm, I'm really deeply thinking about is the role of spirituality in our our everyday lives. And you say spirituality, and unfortunately, in a lot of our culture, especially our academic culture, and people kind of go, woo, woo, right? And they think you're going off into some, some weird place of, you know, kind of crunchy granola, whatever, um, <laughs> new agey type of thing. But that's not it, right? Spirituality, and especially spirit and land, spirit and nature, is fundamental to the project. You can't be in nature if you don't accept that the material is just one part of the experience, right? That there is this spiritual, there is a cosmic connection and now we're going back into the planetary, right? We are absolutely part of this system that's connected to the stars, that's connected to the planet, that's connected to all of the, to the cosmos, to the universe. And we shouldn't have to apologize to talk about that. In fact, the opposite, we should try to figure out how to help us understand that. And that for me is another big part of grandmother epistemology. Um, it does get back to this whole idea of black ecologies. And, and again, what is it? How do we get out of this little cul-de-sac we've got? It's, it's not little, it's a big cul-de-sac we've gotten ourselves in, in terms of our environmental problems. How do, how do we get out of that? And, and some of that is to listen to the wisdom of 
the black grandmothers. Let's let's figure out what they've been telling us. You you know, it's like if you if you you listen to your grandmother because she knows what's up. Also, if you're being naughty, she's gonna tell you, right? And right now, as humans, we have been super naughty. Like we're not doing, we're not behaving right. God don't like ugly, right? That was what grandma would say all the time. God don't like ugly. Chickens coming home to roost, right? And that's the situation we've got now. So I'm really interested in figuring out if I can put language to this idea of, yo, what, what's going on? <laughs> Why are we behaving this way? Straighten up. Straight, like fly right, straighten up. Can't yeah. do that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so those are the things I'm exploring. I love this. I love this. I would be remiss if I didn't go ahead. You know, my mama, my queen, Tracy Teresa Lewis, Nana to, you know, six grandbabies. Um, um, yeah, she's living out this grandmother epistemology, right? Exactly what you're talking about. And the thing that I like pulled even, you know, I can see the theoretical framing um, of intentionality, this daily intentionality in relationship to roles, relationships, um, and connecting that to the, the spiritual. Um, and the thing I was, I was uh, like zoomed in on though, was life in general. It seems like when someone is so focused and intentional about relationships and about the roles of people, of the, the roles that people have in their lives, and the spiritual, meaning the, the, cos the cosmos, um, there's like this focus on life. Um, and I see this even in the thing we had earlier, I think our first episode, I brought up my grandma telling me something before I went to college. Right, it was about right. life. She was like, here's this nugget of information. And it's dirty information. That's the thing. Like I haven't, I, have, I didn't say it on the episode. I'm not going to say it now because it was messy information, but it was about my life. And in the same way, you know, um, my mom teaching me about the police or um, or even like what to eat and how to eat it. You know, uh, it's like all of these little things. Uh, and you talk about a prayer warrior, man, mm. I tell people now I'm not even religious. But if someone tells me they need something or they need help, I'm like, I'm going to tell my mom your name and I'm going to tell her what it is. And let me tell you this. She will pray for you. Right. Um, and that's a connection. Like. And this is it. Yeah, this is the thing that I'm like, you're so right, because it's a connection that's like otherworldly. I'm sorry, this person is so distant from you. My mom has no clue about this person's life, right? Nothing about them at all. And she's like, but I'm gonna spend this time speaking out to the to the universe, because let's just say, let's like take God to be whatever God is. She's speaking out, crying to the universe for this person with no connection, right? And you wanna talk about a, a planetary like consciousness, who like, I've never met someone that has a planetary consciousness like, like my mom and like my grandmother, right? Uh, it's like someone that's so distant, yeah, so distant from other people in the world and still is so willing to give up time in their consciousness for these other people. Right. If that's not going to cosmic, cosmic, if that's not planetary, um, then I don't know what is. So I think you are spot on about using these, you know, black women, grandmothers for this epistemology, because I think they're some of the only ones that can actually give it to us. Right. Um, the, 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 yeah, their connection to the community is so strong. Um, like there's like, there's no way that they can be individualistic. Like my mom doesn't even have the option. Right. And I think that's what like that's what makes their epistemology, like grandmother epistemology, so valuable. Like um, it's easy for me to distance myself. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they can't, they don't have the option, you know, black men are gone. Um, and so if they're not there, who else is gonna be there? Um, yeah, yeah. I'm just I'm like applauding this. Uh, <laughs> I, I like read your proposal, your book proposal proposal, and then like hearing it. It's like giving me life um, and it's doing something that hasn't been done before and it's lifting up black women, especially black, like, I'm sorry, black women are getting lifted up, but not the women that birthed them. You know, black grandmothers are, we like, I'm, so, I'm sorry, but if it wasn't for 
people like my mom, which I, I also call my grandmama. <laughs> yeah, if it wasn't for her, like, man, there's a lot of things that I would have done wrong. There's a lot of places I would have gone wrong. Um, yeah, yeah, I am like, wow. I, I wish that I had, I wish everyone had, you know, a, I'm not gonna lie, a black grandmother speaking in their lives. That's it, that's it. That, you just, that's the purpose of this book. Um, that's what I want to put out in the world, just to give give every give y'all everybody just a little taste. Yeah. I mean, I'm you know I'm writing it for 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 my grandmother and my grandchild, but I want everybody to have a little taste of what this is because the other thing that has happened is that from the bottom and from the outside, right? Because that's 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 where the black woman is from the bottom and from the outside. Yet directing this project that has ended up with an incredible sense of hope and purpose. That's not because we're not beat down. We're beat down, we're exhausted, we're discriminated against, we're being shot. Yes, all of that is true. But what's also true is if you look at us as a people, damn, right? Mm -hmm. Like Black excellence. <laughs> right like like the amount of hope the just the fact that ret, like we ain't spending time thinking about retribution right and, and the sister said that I know everybody saw that video and I can't remember her, I, I can't call her name I think she was in Atlanta it was the day after George Floyd the sister testified on YouTube and she lit it up and she said, y'all, we ain't trying to come after you. If we wanted to come after you, we would have come after you. Ooh, ooh. You know which one I'm talking about. Just give us space to breathe. So all of that gets transmitted, right? Because the grandmother was the one who said, oops, <laughs> that um, you can't, she wouldn't let us give up hope. She didn't care how tired she was or anybody. She would not let that happen. She, and, and what you're saying is true. My grandmother, <laughs> they used to line up to come sit with her and have her, she's the mother of the church. So she would, they, they'd line up so that she could do the prayer. And they'd line up with their whatever they needed, the boyfriend, the husband's doing this, the, the kids, whatever. And she would just look at them and say, are you sure you want this? <laughs> because if I pray for it, you do know you're gonna get it. And so I love that feeling. Uh, that goes back to the intentionality. Let's figure out what do we want? Let's have a vision for how we should be on this planet. And that's, that's maybe the Afro-optimism that I think you were talking about earlier, right? It's not, it's not just diagnosing what's wrong and what, what, what we need to change, all of that, yes, absolutely. But in order to really make that shift, we also have to have a vision of what it is that we're going for. And that vision can be a multiplicity. It's, yeah, not, yeah. it's not one vision and it's not a static vision. vision. But, yeah. it, but we need to be able to, to talk about it. We need to get together around it. We need to figure out ways to create a vision that makes us, that makes us whole because it's making the planet whole. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, we, we, we can't heal because we, we can't under the current circumstances. And every, you know, people, our kids, especially the, our students are feeling that so sharply, right? This climate, this, what do they call it? Climate pessimism and yeah. you know, climate depression. And yeah, uh, duh, yeah, of course they are, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because they realize they're like, what? Yep. And, yeah, and I always tell people the greatest thing I'm doing in my life right now is teaching introductory environmental studies. <laughs> And with my colleagues, I wrote a textbook called Introduction to Environmental Studies. And I, my job is to talk to 19 year olds, 18 and 19 year olds about climate change and the state of the environment in the world right now. Mm -hmm. And my personal mission is to do that without killing hope. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, you've given me hope. You've given me hope. I'm just going to say that. that I'm glad. You, and I'm sorry, Matt, about cutting you off, but just listening to you right now, I know that I've been like not as comprehensive as I need to be in um, my, my race classes. Um, I definitely need to bring in more ecology. I definitely need to bring in stuff that's talking about planetary consciousness. And so it's like this, these like 45 minutes we've had so far has already shifted the way that I'm going to be doing my classes in the future because I just can't, um, yeah, I can't leave this out. Yeah. Uh, and you've, and you've shown me that like, like, that. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It's awesome. It's so cool. Yeah, and and so so as you're talking about as you're talking about sort of envisioning a different future and and the the complete like insanity of the current circumstances, uh, it makes me want to bring the concept of revolution in because uh, you and I, Claudia, we always like to talk about revolution. Uh, we've done writing on Gil Scott Heron and Tracy Chapman talking about revolution. Uh, so where does transformation and revolution come into this discussion for you? Where, where does transformation and revolution intersect with grandmother epistemology? Nice one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, nice one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Matt's my, my revolutionary brother. Um, well, you know, one of the things we talked about was when I discovered the, the uh, was taught the concept of resilience, right? And the resilience cycle and the whole idea of, of a cycle of um, in, coming from ecology of growth and then decline. Like that, that, that is the way ecosystems are put together, natural systems that cycle is natural, right? And then disturbances come along and they destroy parts of the system. Parts of the system go into decline, especially if they're overgrown. And then that allows new things to happen. And so that really helped me rethink about revolution in, in not just political terms, right? Because our first thought of revolution um, we think of politics, we think of political philosophy, we think of, of you know, um, of, of war, we think, right, that's what we're taught. And when I un began to understand revolution in the resilience cycle and in and, and ecology, it really shifted my mindset to understand that revolt, it's called, which is a, a stage in that cycle, is absolutely necessary for the regrowth that comes after um, destruction, after decline. So that you then begin to not fear any of the cycle, right? So what it is, we fear the decline part of the cycle, right? As, as, as part of capitalism, especially the economic capitalism, it's growth, 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 right? So we're now in a system where we are completely overgrown, we're just completely in all ways overconnected, overgrown. And, you know, I'm, I, I, many people have written about this and we've gotten ourselves brittle, right? Because of that, whereas, and they always talk about fire secession as an example, if you, if you don't put out the natural fires and you allow the change in the ecosystem, you don't get a, a system that's like, you know, you can strike a match and the whole thing goes up because the, the, the natural system is towards balance. But we are imbalanced because we're afraid of these natural declines. And I really have come to see revolution and revolt as yes, there's an element of destruction, but we're destroying the stuff that needs to go. So it's like a pruning, right? It, and that is not to be afraid of because it's the only way that the good stuff can flourish. We gotta prune out the, 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 the stuff that's not working. We have to, revolt against that. There has to be a revolution in order for there to be space and new ground and new ideas and new thinkers to bring up these other ideas um, that will enable the, the growth that we need. 
And so that to me um, really begins to speak to revolution in a way that's not um, fearful. People immediately, they hear revolution, they think anarchy. Well, I might be an anarchist. I don't know if I'll talk about that. But <laughs> um, I don't know if I'll reveal that here. But um, but yeah, revolution for me is really more about that natural cycle that happens when when they say small ideas can seed right into these larger projects. And in the environmental world, a lot of that does mean not a grand, we're not gonna have a grand scheme, a grand idea for solving our problems, but we're gonna have a lot of successful local ideas that are networked, right? A lot of people talking about that, that really it, it's local solutions, it's small group quickly moving solutions, but that are talking to each other. Cause we're not going for some unitary project. That's diversity is 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 like yeah. a part of our lives, right? And that's a that's an okay thing. It's not like a bad thing, but we do need the planetary says one planet, guys. We're sharing this. So the project is how can we have these diversity of ways of being here, and yet still share this common resource? And that's why globalization didn't cut it. Globalization's not working, right? Globalization ends up in situations like Ukraine, right? Where you've got nation states that are, you know, atomized and fighting against each other as if they're personalities, right? All of a sudden they're like, like three-year-olds on the playground kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. That's globalization. That's what we got to get away from. So... That was fire, oh, man. Um, yeah, man, I'm about to, I'm, I need to come just like study at your feet for a little bit. Oh, Dwight. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and gonna, your I'm picture gonna, right now too, I just want you to know, you're just like, oh, yeah. Halo, come yeah. Right. Perfect. So, this, about, this ain't about me though. <laughs> and I'm serious. This was fire. I, I do think the the so all of this was great. Um, all of it. Uh, the part that pulled me in, and I keep always bringing up something that pulled me in because I that's just who I am. Sorry, um, but uh, it's the fear and the decline. It's like we fear the decline part of the cycle, but without it, there is no growth, right? Um, and I'm the I'm thinking about this not as so. You know, I'm, I am focused on this planetary, but I'm also looking at myself in relationship to that and how often, like, I want growth, 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 growth. Uh, but what's keeping me away from more growth is not like working at my growth. It's actually like being afraid to fail in my growth, right? <laughs> it's like just the opposite. You think you're, gonna, you're like going to run the race and it's like, oh, if I run it hard enough, I'm going to win the race. And it's like, no, it's being willing to be like, I rolled my ankle and it hurts. I got to sit down here and like bandage this up. And it may take me now like two more hours to run this race. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like dealing with the, 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 the fear that the onset of fear uh, in the right. midst of growth. And I think that's, uh, that's like, yeah, it's hard. And I'm like imagining dealing with that at a planetary level. It's like, how do we like, you know, how do we get people to uh, value the virtue of fear? And I'm taking fear to be a virtue, right? It's like, how do we get people to value that? Uh, because we're just told in every instance not to, right? And I also think even at a biological level, we're kind of told not right. to. Right. Um, but it's like the only way, the only movement forward, right? uh as an individual as a community but also as like a um uh as um an ecology is also by doing it in such a way where we have decline yeah and we accept yeah. fear. um yeah yeah well there has to be a reason for the fear though do i sorry yeah. to interrupt you because i oh. just i want to be clear that it's not 
fear for fear's sake or pain for pain's sake. Like that's trauma. Yep. And that, that's that's not what, what we're talking about here, right? There has to be a there has to be a reason why we're going through what we're going through. I mean, all of this definitely comes from the time, the years I spent delivering babies, right? As a midwife, like I learned so, so very much about uh, intention and purpose and fear and pain. And really, how do you get people? you know, in this case, individual people and families, <laughs> but how do we get our society through this scary moment, right? We are in transition. And so we, we need people. And we, fortunately, we have a lot of people who are midwifing us as societies, as humans, by saying, don't be afraid of the pain. Don't be afraid of the, you know, the, the, what looks like decline. We're going towards something. Hold that vision. There is a reason that this has happened. And so that's an important part of it. Otherwise, it is just trauma. And trauma is not cool, right? Trauma is very, very hurtful to us. It really, it, it breaks our hearts. It makes things actually harder. So I just wanted to add that, yeah. you know, it's important to not glorify the fear or the pain either it just it needs to be kept it's back to balance right yeah. it's not worshiping joy we're told you know toxic positivity is just such a part of our culture right along with individuality it's another place where we get completely out of balance and um, so it's not having that worshiping of joy and happiness and toxic positivity and being able to accept that um, life is hard. There's going to be good stuff and bad stuff, right? These really basic things that unfortunately I, I see my kids, my students struggling with now, right? Like when it gets hard and it's going to be hard. When it gets hard, what is my strategy to get through it? I say that to them at least once a week. I don't want to hear about your mental health days, right? Because your mental health is going to be an issue for the rest of your life. <laughs> okay, let's deal with that. Yeah. So now, what is your strategy to get out of the damn bed, <laughs> right? And in this case, because you don't want to sabotage your education, get out of bed and go to class. What's your strategy? You yeah. develop a strategy, use the strategy and stop self-sabotaging because I tell you a secret, when you get to class, you're going to feel just a little bit better, right? <laughs> than you feel when you're laying in bed feeling sorry for yourself, right? Yeah. So these are the conversations I'm having. I know it's, is it hard? Yeah, it's hard, but that's your, that's your job. I can't tell you what that strategy is. Find what works for you. Yeah, yeah. So we were we were actually going to ask you this question, but you already answered it because oh, that's no. how much you care about. No, 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 no. That's, that's how much you care about your students. Like we were going to ask uh, advice for students in relationship to this, but you just give, which is <laughs> I think that is the definition of who you are, Claudia. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate that. Uh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. This has been fire. We appreciate the time that you've given to us. There is, uh, yeah, this has actually been. Um, I, yeah, I don't like to call favorite episodes, but this has been one of my favorite episodes. Uh, um, cool. I've learned a lot through this and I think that's why. I mean, I just like to learn. Yeah. And, and so this has been a learning experience for me. Uh, and it's told me a, a, about myself. You know, I'm gonna speak on it because, you know, I'm going to. Uh, I feel like oftentimes I'm in a place where people can't tell that I'm hurting, right? Um, and I think it's because I live a little bit uh, in the uh, in the tension that you've been talking about, where I'm trying to hold the good and the bad at the same time. Um, and you can't be like screaming out while you're doing that. You like have to be able to like, you have to like compose yourself. Uh, yeah. It's like, no matter what, you've like got a hand uh, and a full hand and like the hand doesn't even exist, but in the, in pessimism where it's just like dark nihilistic and you're like trying to hold on to some light um and it's difficult and i feel that here uh and in your reason for fear uh i feel the same thing there um and i'm just like this was speaking to me the whole time uh and i i just loved it uh, if you have any last words you want to shout out 
um, or to um, to say to the to the audience. Um, we want to give you a little bit of space for that, Claudia. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you for that feedback. And yeah, no, I I do care about my students so much, and it's just such a privilege to learn from them, right? Because I'm always learning from them, and I love to learn. So that that's my thing. I think one thing I have discovered is that that those dark, scary places, and I've 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 been there and witnessed them, right? So all this traveling around the world that I did, I was working in war zones and working in some of the most horrendous crises, certainly of, of, of the you know, 20th and beginning of the 21st century, like Rwanda and Cambodia and Guatemala. And so I got to see how bad things can get, both on a societal level and a, on, on a personal level and with family. And one thing I've learned is that sometimes falling to the bottom of that black place, that abyss, which is scary as hell and not something I recommend, but I've also gotten down there and discovered it is true that at the bottom of this, that cave are where the diamonds are buried. Mm, mm. And I have gotten down there so shit i'm here i am in the darkness here right <laughs> but just looked around in terms of a personal revelations about myself my situation the world and some things that have just come crystal clear and that it's not as if to say it's been worth it but it has been worth suspending some of the fear Right, that saying, if you find yourself in a dark tunnel, just keep walking, right? Don't stop, right? That, that whole idea of it's not that you're running from the darkness or trying to avoid it, but that you're, going, you're moving through it. And when I finally got that movement through it, it really, really helped me a lot to understand and to get, get a hold of some of that. And you find that, you know, that strategy, you begin to know when you're in those places. And I tell, tell the students this too, you're going to begin to find the light, how you get there, right? You're going to have your way of climbing out of that. And you can't know what that way of climbing out is if you didn't end up down there in the first place, right? So throw yourself a rope or leave the rope up there and just figure out, okay, here I am dark place, need to get out of here. Where are the handholds? Where did I leave all that? So. Well, thank you, Claudia. I am yeah. Oh, poor Dwight. Sitting in such gratitude for you right now. Thank uh, you. Thank, you. thank <laughs> you for asking me to come, especially at this, this point in the book. Because, you know, it's still like fresh. I'm trying to figure it out. So this is perfect. 